I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas About Plastic Words. Here are three quite ordinary sentences, sentences which would not seem out of place in a politician's speech, a consultant's report, or a daily newspaper. Sentence one. Progress in educational planning will depend on a restructured process of communication. Sentence two. Current models of development are not addressing pressing information needs. Sentence three. Social adjustment depends on a secure sexual identity. Each of these seemingly innocent and unremarkable utterances is composed of what German scholar Uwe Perksen calls plastic words. Information, communication, structure, identity, process, model, development, and needs are all examples of this modern and increasingly international code. Uwe Perksen is a linguist, a medievalist, a novelist, and a professor at the old University of Freiburg in southwestern Germany. In 1988, he published a book called Plastikwörter, Die Sprache einer internationalen Diktatur, Plastic Words, the Language of an International Dictatorship. The book is now available in English from the Pennsylvania State University Press. Plastic words, according to Professor Perkson, are words of colloquial origin which have been taken up by some branch of science or expert knowledge and then return to everyday speech with new connotations. Information, for example, is an old English word. Not more than 50 years ago, it began to be used as a term in communication theory, where it signifies that property of a signal or message which can be distinguished from noise and measured in bits. In ordinary speech, it now has a scientific aura without actually denoting anything precise. In a similar way, words like structure and role have made a round trip from the vernacular into sociology and back. Sexuality and identity have journeyed through psychoanalysis and development through biology. These words then spread into every corner of the language, displacing synonyms, overshadowing more homely terms, and seducing speakers with their shimmer of scientific prestige. When people use these words, Perkson says, they unwittingly turn themselves into clients of those who actually know what the words mean. And at the same time, their own power to say what they mean is reduced. On this edition of Ideas, we explore Uwe Perkson's conception of plastic words. The program is written and presented by David Cayley. In 1875, in a book called Untimely Meditations, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a short passage about what he called the madness of general concepts. This passage anticipates at least the outline of Uwe Perkson's theory of plastic words, and in his book, Perkson quotes it in full. Everywhere, Nietzsche says, language has fallen ill. He believes this sickness to be a consequence of the overweening ambition of modern science, using that term in its broad sense. In order to grasp the domains of thought, Nietzsche says, language has been forced to climb to the highest level it could reach. 
And in this ambitious reach for an increased power of generalization and abstraction, it has suffered a proportional loss in vividness, concreteness, and direct correspondence with our experience. In the short space of contemporary civilization, he says, the strength of language has been exhausted by this excessive effort, with the result that language can no longer express the simple joys and sorrows of suffering people. Language, he goes on, has everywhere become a power unto itself, which now grabs the people with ghostly arms and forces them into places where they don't even want to go. As soon as they try to understand one another and come to some agreement, they are seized by the madness of general concepts. Man is no longer recognizable in language, he concludes, because language no longer corresponds to his actual troubles, but only to, again I'm quoting, the hollowness of those tyrannical words and concepts. This passage stands alone in the essay in which it appears, a brief sketch without further elaboration. But like so much of Nietzsche, it is strangely clairvoyant. What he had to strain to see, he speaks of a condition only dimly intuited, we would now have to strain to overlook, a murky, inept, and refractory language. Uwe Perksen tries to analyze this condition with his concept of plastic words. Plastic words embody the ambition Nietzsche speaks of to climb to the highest level of abstraction. The term development, for example, when applied to whole societies, refers to a process of total transformation without limit. There is nothing that cannot be developed, and nothing, consequently, which is not development. Such words, Perkson believes, spread like an oil slick, covering the whole field of their application with a thin film of connotations. And the more they spread, the more diffuse their meaning becomes. Plastic words, Perkson says, are without form, taste, or texture. They evoke no particular place, no particular history. Like the substance for which they are named, they are both malleable and inert. And they have two great effects. The first is that they turn society into a laboratory by mandating a state of permanent change and authorizing the hegemony of the experts and professionals who will direct this change. Words like role, model, factor, and trend, all on Perkson's list, are like molds in which society and persons are again and again reshaped taking on new roles, adopting new models, following new trends. The second great effect is that they overshadow ordinary intercourse and the ordinary words on which it depends. Beside these imperious and universal constructs, simply to live or simply to speak without any intention of altering or improving what one speaks about seems paltry and perhaps a little irresponsible. Shouldn't we, after all, be communicating, getting to grips with our sexuality, assessing our needs, adapting to current trends, or whatever it may be? I've been fascinated by Uwe Perksen's theory of plastic words since I first heard of it. I've read his book in an unpublished translation, and his approach seems to me much more helpful and more analytically pointed than what is usually called language criticism 
and often amounts to little more than hectoring people about their careless disregard for the grammatical rules and syntactical niceties cherished by the critics. Recently I met with Uwe Perksen at the home of historian Barbara Duden in the northern German city of Bremen. There we recorded the interview from which this program is taken. He began by telling me where the idea of plastic words originated in a conversation with his friend Ivan Illich. We spent one year at the same place at the Wissenschaftskolleg, a colleague of, uh, for advanced studies in uh, Berlin. He was very much interested in some essays I had written on the uh, history of language of science. Uh, I had written an essay on the language of Linné and Goethe, of Darwin, of Freud. And uh, what interested me in these essays was they took words of colloquial language, gave them in their scientific context a special scientific meaning. And then those words shifted back into uh, colloquial language. And there they had an enormous career. They worked like keys, like keywords for many spheres and for example also they had a political career like the words which were the main, the keywords of Darwin, struggle for life, just in Germany you know, <laughs> natural selection. They had a dangerous career. But also there's very interesting in our language to observe how the expressions which Freud coined in his scientific context, how they uh, shifted and changed and developed in, their, in our common speech. And even asked me, couldn't you draw the line out? Let us speak about this phenomenon in the last two, three decades, how do words work in our time? Which also were taken from colloquial language, coined by science, and then returned. Perkson undertook this investigation reluctantly. Describing the disabling of the vernacular, he says in the introduction to his book, has something depressing about it. It has not always been possible to approach it without breaking into a sweat and feeling dizzy. Still, he pondered this terrible theme, as he called it, and one of the things he noticed was the way in which plastic words were making possible the unwelcome transformation of his beloved city of Freiburg and the old wine-growing region which surrounds it. The nearly 900-year-old city of Freiburg was then being developed and wine production in its vicinity rationalized under the aegis of a document entitled Blueprint for a Plan of Space Utilization. Perkson observed how words like structure, service, and system worked like a potter preparing clay to soften up the existing reality of the city and make it workable. The vocabulary of planning, he noted, deprived things of their particularity, their suchness, and moved them into a homogeneous and universal space 
where they could be more easily manipulated. And there were other incidents which convinced him of the power of plastic words, like a meeting he attended in the little mountain city of Tepoztlan in Mexico. I was not very good in Spanish language. <laughs> and they were talking about how can we develop our country. And it was so easy to understand what they said, because there were only 10, 15 words which recurred, which were repeated. Modernization, processo, progresso, la crisis, estructura, sistema, and so on. Just the words which I was concerned with. So I saw, thought, if this is the basic code of these people, and marks the lines which they will follow in future. It is dangerous. And the other thing is, was I found some newspapers which an uncle of mine, the brother of my father, had gathered in the 30s during the Nazi time. He lived in a city which I knew very well, and he had gathered articles. He had cut them and gathered them. And what I read there was like a net which had laid above the heads of the city. It was very strange because there was no connection between what we regard as the reality of 1934 or 1935 and what was the description and the language in the papers of that time. And then I thought, maybe we are living in a very similar way, in a cloud of words which determine our conscience and uh, we don't notice it. And just the Nazi time is an example for me that people follow language perils, slogans, an idiotic interpretation of the world, which only exists because there exists this net, these nodal points of keywords which explain history and present day for them. Perkson's conviction about the power of language grew and he became more and more convinced that the words he was studying, immigrants from science into everyday speech, constituted a distinct and definable class. They were not slogans, buzzwords, jargon, or any of the other more obvious manifestations of modern verbal inflation, but something less obtrusive. The latest vogue word is noticed and often loudly denounced. Jargon, for example, is a favorite bete noir even of those who use it. But needs, sexuality, or values settle comfortably into the background of contemporary talk, where they are hardly noticed. So Perkson took on the task of defining this phenomenon of plastic words, both more elusive and more pervasive than most previous language critics had noticed. I tried to classify 
those words in a very, uh, you know, systematic way, very German way, perhaps. <laughs> I tried to find criteria. How can I describe those words? How can I make what we call Phantombild, uh, Suchbild? Uh, if you want to find a criminal, you draw a Phantombild. I don't know the English word for that. Huh? A composite image. Composite image. <laughs> that was what I tried to, to draw. And, you know, first I didn't know how can I describe this type of words, which, uh, as it seemed to me, was like a code, like a new code, a set of, I didn't know how many, a set of words which are used in a very special way in our colloquial language. Words like communication, energy, sexuality, information, modernization, Entwicklung, that is development. And uh, then suddenly I had the idea to just to draw this composite image and point after point try to say they have some features by which they can be uh, isolated. They derive from science, for example. They are very abstract. They have a large content, a large field, which is meant by one of those words. Like, for example, sexuality is very strange because it can be used for so many forms of <laughs> relation. One year ago, one of our famous uh, scientists in Germany, the president of the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, he said, language is the sexuality of human culture. It's <laughs> a sort of nonsense. <laughs> but it's possible to say that. And people think they understand something. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I only wanted to say the large content of this word, that were some of the features. I just worked out 30 of those, <laughs> tried to work out, yes. Uh, at last I had 30 of those uh, criteria. One of these criteria is that plastic words have a wide power of connotation and no precise power of denotation, whatever. Denotation here refers to what a word actually designates, connotation to all the feelings and associations it evokes. Plastic words, as Ivan Illich has put it, make waves, but they don't actually hit anything. Perkson develops the point at length in his book, choosing one key word from what at the time he wrote, was West Germany, and one from the East. I tried to analyze the word Entwicklung, development, how it was used in the DDR, in Eastern Germany. At that time, it was a state for itself, you know. And I got many papers from there and uh, texts and so on. And I also visited sometimes the little city Weimar and so on. And I made many observations. And I observed that it was a word which was used in any context, 
Sometimes I remember I visited a museum in Weimar and within two sentences this word was used five times. It was like a grunt. It said nearly nothing. It only said movement which goes from down to upstairs, you know? <laughs> no more. A very void, nearly void sense, but it had a large connotation. It, it was a very positive word. It was acceptable by everyone. It had to be accepted. It was also a word which was very uh, usable in a dictature, because everyone who didn't accept development was an enemy of this state. And the description of this word I compared with my description of sexuality in Western Germany. And the surprising result was that the main features I had observed describing the one word, development, were the same I had observed when describing sexuality. So you could repeat the sentence of the president. Yes. yes. Development is the sexuality <laughs> of the DDR, yeah? yeah you are, yes, you're right. I could have used that example, yes. Yes. You spoke about your earlier studies of how words came out of colloquial vernacular speech into science and back again. Yes. As you began to have a more precise definition of the class of plastic words, what did you come to see as the implications of this journey through science? That What does it do to the person who uses the word? As a linguist, one would say, if I use a word of our colloquial language, I can use it in several meanings. If I use the word love or friendship in this one context, it will mean this. In another context, perhaps it will have a little bit different meaning. When I use a word like sexuality, speaking of myself, I don't come along with my sexuality, people say, for example. I use a word which is like a building block. A building block which is nearly a stereotype. And there is a sphere where people are the experts, who I can ask, what is going on with me? The same is if you use development. For example, in the Eastern Germany at that time, there was a group of experts who had defined what development is, had to be. And I think this is one of the criteria of these words, in colloquial language, I lose the power of definition. It is defined in another place, this word. And I use it, I'm, I, I lose the power of giving the different meanings, nuances, and shadows of the word. And as well as losing the power to define, whenever I use such a word, you're saying, yes. I invoke someone who knows more than me. Yes, who is above me, who is... So I place myself in a hierarchy. Yes. That is how those words work.
There is a famous word of Max Weber, one of the speeches he gave 1919 after the First World War, before a student in Heidelberg. And he said, our modern situation is this, nobody of us knows how a tram works. A streetcar. Nobody of us can explain how it works. But we are living in the belief that we can uh, get the knowledge from somebody, from some experts. That is the same thing with those words. They are like trams <laughs> rolling through our language, and there are people, there are spheres where you can ask what is the meaning of those words. When someone speaks such a word, yeah. what happens to them? What does the word do for them as they use it? They define themselves as a client, as a client of sexuality experts, as a client of modernization experts. That's one thing. I think what is more important, perhaps, is the use of those words gives them a alien form of self-perception. Is it a possible word? Yeah. Self-perception. Yeah. They learn by words like communication. I'm a man, a human being, which communicates, which has to be informed, which has to be developed, which has to be modernized, which is a system of circling energy. Sexuality is a special form of energy circling in my system. This is the way of alien self-perception, which I learn when I accept to use these words in this public meaning. Does it also confer some benefit on the user that he feels, now I'm speaking in a serious way? Or yes, I think so. I think it uh, gives some prestige to use words like communication and information. It's, it's a word which is accepted everywhere. It sounds scientific. It, uh, <laughs> you belong to the empire. You belong to the Roman <laughs> church. You belong to, to any church if you use those words. What effect do plastic words have on other words? In Germany we say, sie sehen alt aus. They look old. Some young... To make them obsolete, perhaps. Yeah. Kids, or teenagers, or talking together, they say, er sah plötzlich alt aus. Suddenly he looked old. He is looking as a backward. And that is what happens, I think. Those words are a little bit electric, modern. There's a suggestion of modernity, of... Uh, success also of positive way of thinking and uh, mm -hmm. you give the impression that you live at the cutting edge yeah cutting edge you say yeah. yes another of your i think criteria for defining plastic words is that they eliminate or displace their synonyms 
Yeah. So precise ways of speaking fall into disuse. Is that right? Yes. You can uh, observe that for things which are now pointed on by words like sexuality or like communication, there's a lot of words which you also could use. In Germany, I think I could tell you many words which are possible instead of communication. Geschwätz, Rede, Gespräch, Unterhaltung, Plausch, so many words. When the word communication is uh, en vogue, the other words seem to disappear. It's the same thing which seems to go on in agriculture. There's still only one sort of rice, or of corn, or of mice, tomato, which is used in a region where 20, 30 years ago was used a lot of different types, sorts. That seems to go on also with language in some degree. So one could speak of a reduction in linguistic diversity as much yes. as one speaks of yes. now of biological yes. diversity. Yes, there's a reduction. By this international code of 30, 40 keywords, <laughs> maids which serve at any time, <laughs> the consequence is that a lot of very fine, very verbum proprium or mojusta expressions which were used for those words some time before, they seem to disappear. In the final chapter of his book, Uwe Perksen uses the term mathematization to describe the colonization of everyday talk by the nouveau riche nephews of science, which he calls plastic words. He chooses the term not because plastic words are mathematically precise, quite the opposite, but because they share the abstract, flexible, ahistorical character of numbers, and like numbers, look past the peculiarities of things to their regular repeatable, and universal attributes. In his chapter on mathematization, Perkson cites two striking parallels to this idea. The first is the history of 20th century linguistics, from Ferdinand de Saussure to Noam Chomsky, which has increasingly seen words as arbitrary elements of a code. The second is Newspeak, the parody language invented by George Orwell in his novel 1984. The idea of newspeak, Perkson says, arose from Orwell's encounter with something called basic English. 
This was an attempt to create an international lingua franca by simplifying English. It was first described by its inventor, C.K. Ogden, in a book published in 1930. Ogden worked out this uh, basic English, I think 850 words, a small lexicon, just words which were usable in many contexts. And Orwell was very fond of this project. <laughs> he was very much interested in it, he was very fond of it. And he also tried to use this basic English. He was working as a journalist and during the Second World War. And when he wrote his reports, living in England, observing what was going on in the war between the United Kingdom and Germany. And during these writings, he watched how dangerous, how satanic such a reduced language works. And in that time, he worked out his nightmare utopia, 1984. And he uh, wrote down the rules for what he called Newspeak. And uh, when I tried to work out my plastic words, to describe them, I didn't think of 1984. It was long ago <laughs> when I had read this book, and I didn't, uh, in that moment, I didn't think of it. But I don't know how. So I think somebody said, look at that book and read how he describes uh, the language of 1984. And there were so many parallels that I was, uh, <laughs> yes, I was surprised. And the main thing for me is, it's a reduced language. It's a language flexible. The parts can be combined in many ways. They are like flexible building blocks, like Lego. They are ahistoric. History has disappeared. They don't remind of local and historical moments. One of your interesting remarks about plastic words is not just that they display synonyms, but that they might also displace a silence. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, they are like a light which seems to reach every place. They are shadowless. I don't know why, but it seems to me that they are shadowless. The word modernization seems to mean that there has to be no place where modernization does not take place. Communication where communication does not take place. Sexuality where it does not take place. The, the words like are like an imperative. Uh, like an order, like an, yes, they have such a expanding light. Yeah. And this aspect of building blocks, yeah. that these are words that have a function more than a content. You can take a group of such words mm -hmm. and yes. put them like dice into a cup and roll them out. 
Yeah. And and you'll get a intelligible sentence, or seemingly intelligible sentence, much of the time. Yeah. So education is a process of communication, isn't it? Yes, you're right. And uh, but communication is also a process of education. Yes, I just want to turn the. That's true. Yes, and another thing which is interesting in this context, you can take five of these words and combine them with the the expert vocabulary of any sphere, perhaps agriculture, of health. You take words like education and development and process and combine them with words of the sphere of medicine, health or agriculture. And then you have a model of uh, a new reality. This way you can change a city into a lab, into a laboratory. You can change an institute into a laboratory. Tell them that a process has to go on. A communication process, a modernization process, a information process. The president of our country where I live, Baden-Württemberg, Lothar Spät, he wrote a book that we are an information society. That was one year before the propaganda for creating this information society started. We were reformulated as an information society. And I think the words were the forerunners or the, the avant-garde, the leaders in this process in Apostrophes. Is it clear? Yeah. yeah. In fact, you say yeah. in the book that the the words are are channels that run ahead of history. Yes. So you see the words actually as creating a mental space in which certain certain things become possible. Yes. Yeah. It seems to me that these words are powerful. They make an area plain for change for new structures, for new systems, for change of structures. That's one of those words. When you say they make it plain, you mean they flatten it out? Flat, yeah. yes. Make yeah. it flat. Take out the... Mm -hmm. They make it like a tabula rasa, nearly, where you can build up new Lego cities, Lego institutions, Lego education. They make history disappear. That is why, when I read the texts of city planning in our city where I live, in Freiburg, agriculture and wine planning in our surrounding, the plans of our minister president of the country, how to make an informed society. And I saw how similar this texts were constructed. On the one hand, it seemed to me ridiculous. It was a sort of satire 
of satire or yeah. yeah which I wanted to write and on the other hand I thought it is frightening one of the things which Perkson finds frightening about plastic words is the way in which they overshadow and denature ordinary experience when desire is swallowed by sexuality or conversation becomes communication private life itself tends to disappear all acts become public and exemplary instances of some wider principle the domain of colloquial or vernacular speech loses its sovereignty plastic words according to perkson blur and often obliterate the boundaries between everyday life and the sphere of scientifically based planning administration and expert knowledge they are in this sense metaphors a metaphor like the harbor of marriage a traditional german phrase fuses two distinct and separate realities in one image the plastic words also link two domains but with a crucial difference metaphors freely reveal their nature no one imagines that marriage is literally a harbor plastic words do not you combine two spheres which could be perhaps should be autonomous in one expression there's the sphere of science from which these words derive and they are used for a sphere of every day and there is a gap between those two spheres i think could be should be what is the interesting thing with those words seems to me that there is you don't notice this gap you lose the awareness that there is a gap you can use sexuality here and there development here and there communication here and there information here and there those words are bridges between those two spheres combining them giving the impression that there is no difference between the sphere of science on the one hand and the sphere of everyday life on the other scientific terms are used as social tools and this means that the social uh, sphere the social the, our everyday life our city life our education sphere and so on is looked on in the same way as a scientist looks looks on his phenomenon on his objects and he works with them like um, like he works as an expert in his in his lab in reality and thus those words are able to change our social life also our family life into a lab how would you define a vernacular what do you mean by the term vernacular in this moment i used uh, vernacular in this wide way but i think one could try to describe vernacular also as a language within horizons locally bound you hear an individual voice you use gestures you have a tone in your voice you have a you are concrete 
you don't use power. You don't say Roma locuta est. Rome has spoken. You just are colloquial. Plastic words, on the other side, are words which are not combined with gestures, which don't have any tone, any personal touch. They are hygienic, sterile, universal. And a word which is used like a term of physics, like information or energy, must be a word which has a universal meaning. That is by definition. If it is used as a social tool, if it is used in the context of society, it creates uniformity. Universality, on the one hand, creates changes in the society to uniformity. You've identified 30 or 40 plastic words. It seems that any era must have special words, words that are bigger than other words, words that Lewis Carroll says portmanteau words, suitcases into which many things can be stuffed. If we looked in the Middle Ages, perhaps there would be more theological terms. Um, maybe if we tried to define substance, it would take us 12 or 20 pages to do it. How are the plastic words, in your view, different from such words? Already the Roman Empire, I think, has had some words which were spread by the coins. They had Pax Romana, for example. In each provinces, there were spread coins which had an inscription like that. Pax Romana was one of the important ones. And it was like a parole, like a advice, like a people knew. They were living in a great empire, which meant Pax, Justitia, <laughs> Health, Sanitas, and so on. And the period of which you spoke, Substantia, Yes, there are philosophical and theological terms which were perhaps thought of as interpretations of the world which had much authority. But I think these words were interpretations with authority, but not by definition tools of permanent change. The plastic words are tools of permanent change without limit. They are totally limitless. They don't have horizons. They don't have borders. They are an imperative to go on. That is, I think, what the word sexuality does. It says the society has to be a sexualized society, it's like a task for everyone to come along with sexuality, to uh, practice it, and so on. You know, it's the same with development. It's the same with uh, 
communication with information. Why? <laughs> but it is what these words say. Therefore, I think there is a big difference between these modern code and that old terms and abstracts which were powerful too. If we speak about substance, substance, it is a word which in many texts will be a clear, defined, precise word. It's an abstract, useful in some, perhaps in many degrees or many aspects. The same can happen if you want to use these plastic words. A word like communication is useful if you write a text as a scientist, as a scholar. You do some research on how bees, what will you say? How they communicate. You must say something like that. You need an abstract word. And you can use this word communication, communicate, in a precise manner, in a precise way. And uh, therefore, I would like to say that these words, that it are not the words themselves, which should be uh, put on an index. But what I just wanted to say, if I try to describe these plastic words, I mean uh, one side of this dice. This side, which today mostly is on the head, but it's only one side. And there are contexts where you can use these words, where they are good words. What do you mean in saying that plastic words transform history into nature or naturalize history? They are like spectacles or like oculars or objectives which look on reality in one way. They look on it as a natural phenomenon. You look on it like a physician. I don't say anything about the way a physician looks. But the problem is that we, by these words, learn to look on society like the physician. And by that, in that way, we change society itself. Your book sometimes seems to have a, an apocalyptic note. And obviously to the extent that plastic words naturalize history, yeah. they represent the end of history and in, a, in an even more frightening sense, the end of experience. But obviously when I speak to you, I see that you also have a healthy respect for the power of resistance that also renews itself. Yes, yes. If I think of many, many things, the city I live in, the country I live in, the family, I, my brothers, <laughs> and so on, there are so many things which are so encouraging. The young people, the young students that I work together with, there was a time when I was just, when I had plunged into this, uh, these texts, reading day for day the texts of the planners, the texts of the 
advertisers, the texts of politicians, the texts of how can we change in our just neighborhood. We have a very wonderful wine area. How these mountains were changed within 10 years as they haven't changed since Roman Empire. Then uh, you cannot sleep. <laughs> man, man hat Schweißausbrüche. Man won't sweat. Man, uh, yes. It seems as if reality itself disappears. That reality is no longer reality. But uh, there is only one side. And uh, sometimes I think it would be a very good exercise to focus the other side. Not to stare on the shadow sides, but to look on the other side. Well, I think a book like yours implicitly does look on the other side by its existence. <laughs> I hope so. Yes, I hope so. Our whole everyday life is full of situations where you can use a concrete, precise, and in this way also a poetic phrase, word. So, the possibility to escape the power of these words, I think, is there at any time. But it is not so easy. Ideas, you've been listening to a conversation between David Cayley and Professor Uwe Perksen of the Albert Ludwigs University in Freiburg, Germany. Professor Perksen is a linguist, a specialist in medieval literature, and a novelist. His book, Plastic Words, The Language of an International Dictatorship, was published in Germany in 1988. An English version was published last fall by the Penn State University Press and is available in bookstores. Tonight's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Technical production by Greg Fleet. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program for $7 plus GST. Send your check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio for Between the Covers, following the 10 o'clock news.
On Ideas, you've been listening to a conversation between David Cayley and Professor Uwe Pirksen of the Albert Ludwigs University in Freiburg, Germany. Professor Pirksen is a linguist, a specialist in medieval literature, and a novelist. His book, Plastic Words, The Language of an International Dictatorship, was published in Germany in 1988. The book is not yet available in English. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants were Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. Technical production by Greg Fleet. A transcript of this program is available for $5 or a cassette for $10. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Plastic Words, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait up to eight weeks for delivery. Two books by David Cayley, Ivan Illich in Conversation and Northrop Fry in Conversation are now available in bookstores. The publisher is House of Anansi Press. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. <laughs>